Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. Today, we're joined in Canada by Rosa Brooks, in California by Corey Shockey, and here in our tiny um, and yet nuclear blast-proof studio on the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK by Ed Luce of the Financial Times and David Sanger of the New York Times. Let's talk about some recent interesting developments in the world at large. Ed, you're not from New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking that with mixed feelings. Yeah, no, you should. Yeah, because there's no better place than New Jersey, the Garden State. Maybe uh, Jersey. Jersey. We call it Jersey. No, no, no. Gern- He's got another Jersey. Jersey. He's got the real original Jersey. Well, yeah. Okay. Right. Bridges, you know. They're very different there. Yeah. They're very yeah. different. Very different. They're quiet but types. You I don't are... associate myself with either Jerseys. Uh, well, all right, fine. You do associate yourself with the still fragile United Kingdom. There was an election there. It was a giant shock. Now, it actually wasn't a very clear outcome. The number of seats the conservatives had went down a few. Um, Labor got a few more seats. Um, And it looks like we're heading for what uh, one publication I was reading called a zombie parliament. Um, what had happened? Well, Theresa May, um, as you know, um, thought that she could strengthen her relatively parlous situation as a leader of a party, a very Brexit. You know, the people write in to get you on these podcasts because you use words like parlous. Parlous. Um, fantastic. Yeah, I, I thought they just write in for the accent. <laughs> no. It's, it's Corey. It's, it's, it's Corey's there, and she's like flashing back to some. I'm the one who writes in and says. <laughs> I, I, I feel I feel inadvertently um, dissed by um, by David Sanger by saying that it's just the accent. The the implication about the content is really too much for me to bear. Um, so <laughs> Please I'm gonna, put I'm yourself gonna, together. I'm gonna try and soldier to. on. Stiff I'm upper try not there to divert <laughs> attention from content by keeping my language simple and New Jersey from this point onwards. Um, the that, So May wanted to increase the majority so that she could strength, negotiate Brexit from a position of strength. Um, exact opposite happened. She lost her majority, although only barely, um, and is now in a situation, a, a really bizarre and potentially quite combustible situation of relying on the 
essentially Protestant fundamentalist party of the democratic um, Ulster, uh, Ulster Unionists to make up that difference uh, between being the largest minority party and forming a majority government. They have 10 seats. She's eight seats short of majority. Um, and it's potentially really very dangerous because there is no government now in Northern Ireland. Sinn Féin and the DUP uh, cannot cooperate. It's broken down. And in such circumstances, the British and Irish governments play honest brokers. Now, if the DUP is the British government, they cannot play honest broker. And it's particularly dangerous because this Brexit that May was supposedly negotiating from a position of strength after this election and now cannot um, has to deal first according to the Europeans, with the Irish border question. Before they even get that and the debt that Britain allegedly owes, 100 billion euros that Britain allegedly owes Brussels um, for, for uh, um, making this exit, these two have to be agreed before the divorce negotiations begin in full. And, and you can't, nothing now can happen on Ireland um, in good faith, because Sinn Féin can just walk away from it. But before I get to ask these other three guests here to comment on the consequences, is there any chance Jeremy Corbyn ends up forming a government anytime soon? It's a possibility in the event that there is another election. I mean, Britain is Italianizing pretty pretty quickly here. Governments are, are, are falling pretty quickly. Uh, majorities look really weak and um, and friable. Um, and uh, there could be an election within a year. And it's quite possible that Corbyn um, w- would be a serious contender, having acquitted himself surprisingly well, once again disproved all of us experts who had a certain view on how things would turn out. The one thing we were sure of was that, you know, Corbyn's proposal for having a grand military alliance with Venezuela was not going to go down well with the British electorate. (laughs) That's the one thing we could bank on, is at least we know that. That little piece of driftwood we were clinging on to is is now free. um, and we it don't even know will that. will always be in England then. Yes, <laughs> maybe not. always be in England. <laughs> maybe. It's a parlous place, though. Parlous. <laughs> it, may, it, also, it also may just be all by itself. Yes, at the rate, it's at the, true. At the rate they're going. I have to say, well, I was in England a week ago. I, I was there actually at the time of the terrorist attacks, but in different towns across England. And I remember I was walking through a little strange town in the middle of England called Stroud. Um, in Gloucestershire. In Gloucestershire, where it literally, this is the town that I think Monty Python got the Ministry of Silly Walks. <laughs> this, every third person was really kind of hard to believe. It was, a, it was a, a lot, years and years of inbreeding. Please don't write in Stroud nerds. But, uh, but somebody came up to me and said, Want to go see Jeremy Corbyn? He's speaking down the road. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. And the guy was like, no, no, serious. And every town I went to, I would talk to fairly stable people and they would say, well, Jeremy Corbyn. And I would go, you got to be kidding me. And they go, no, no, Jeremy Corbyn is kind of – they were taking him more seriously than I thought. And and this is a guy who, at the same time, there were pictures of him at some like Hamas or Hezbollah rally or some other kind of craziness. You know, he. Um, if you if you listen, it's it, somebody once said that if you read, uh, if you listen to 
Dick Cheney talk. Um, it all seems very reassuring because he just sounds like a family solicitor. But if you read the text, the transcript, your blood runs cold. Now, if you watch Corbyn live, he's a very authentic three-dimensional character. And Theresa May, I don't think Theresa May even has two dimensions. I think she's purely a one-dimension. She, she comes across as the sort of stereotype, archetypical a cardboard cutout politician mouthing repeated. Did robotic. you ever read your daughter the book uh, about Flat Stanley? No, he lives but, in a two-dimensional <laughs> world. Oh no! I should, I, I'm going to order that from Amazon straight afterwards. But he comes across as a, a vuncular, consist authentic, and he is authentic. You know, I mean, he's that. That's that was his very problem. Is that he means what he says. And so none of the sort of normal bullshit detectors you would get with a politician who's learned some talking points and has lawyered up their language and just keeps repeating it and beating you with it. None of those problems occur when you listen to Corbyn. He, he's uh, like your uncle. He's got mad views, but, you know, they're, they're, they're sincerely held. I, by the way, want to point out that it was Ed Luce with his lovely accent who was the first person to throw profanity into this episode of the podcast. <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> all of which proves it's all about the accent, not about so the content. Good. It was right? like bullshit detector. And I was like, oh my God, I want to have one of those. It seems a very high class. Sorry, with, you can edit out the recent word. No, no, we're, comic no we, yeah. we're, we're sanity and profanity. That's our motto on our mugs. <laughs> Not that um, order. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 Rosa, it seems to me, and I'm just going to take a couple of the week's elections at once and then sort of mush them together, that you've made a terrible mistake. I know you're drawn to Justin Trudeau and you think, well, I'm going to go up to ottawa and see the ministry of defense Careful here david careful and and i may <laughs> bump into justin trudeau as he's kayaking down some river or something like that um and, but i think you've picked the wrong transformational young leader because it's quite clear that if you look at the other election in europe of last week which is the french election that emmanuel macron came from nowhere with nothing and invented a party and has now a substantial majority over the two established parties in France. And in fact, while Britain is Italianizing um, and America is Putinizing, France seems to be offering us up an example of how the center can turn the political order upside down and actually create not just an alternative, but a credible, sensible alternative. And that maybe you ought to hop the next plane to Paris if you're really, you know, seeking to learn from the great young leaders of tomorrow. There are silos for sale in southern France and it's a much better place to go. Yeah, they're full of wheat. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't think my, my, my French is good enough for Quebec, where everybody actually speaks English, thank goodness, but I don't think my French is good enough for France. Um, so I'm going to stay here in Canada. But, but I also think, David, that you are, you are being a little overly generous in your assessment of the, the likely future in France. I, I, I think all, the only thing I, can, I think we can conclude so far from both the election results in the U.K., the election results uh, in France, and from the recent polls and events in the United States is that not only are 
some American voters who voted for Trump having a, an acute fit of buyer's remorse, uh, but that we might just have scared everybody else straight. Um, you know, that the, the rise in, we were, of course, all talking about the, the rise in nationalist populism uh, uh, at the time of Trump's election and, and looking at uh, events, the Brexit vote and so forth. And I think that that, that demographic and opinion trend is, is real, but I also think that the the initial results with Trump coming in with the Brexit vote were so frightening for so many disaffected both centrists and leftists that it has scared them right back to the polls. Um, I think that's what we're seeing right now. And whether in France, Macron's party manages to create sort of an enduring uh, governance group, is, is it's too early to tell. I mean, obviously, um, we have had good and bad experience with, with amateurs in politics, uh, uh, both in this country and in other countries. Um, so I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. I think it's probably premature to assume that they're going to create anything enduring. But, but I do think that what we're seeing, is, and, and, it's a, and it's a good thing, too, uh, is a little bit of a sense of, whoa, we flirted with that nationalist populism, and that's not going to take us anywhere good. Let's see if we can do a little bit of a course correction. So, Corey, this is, this is good news. This is like Deep State Radio is finally on to its first good news episode. Donald Trump is our 400-pound uncle. It won't last. Do- Donald Trump is our 400-pound <laughs> uncle who drops dead of a heart attack in front of everybody at the July 4th picnic, and everybody says we got to go on a diet. This is good news, so, right? much as I would love to to don the rhinestone tiara of optimism which I, I honestly I think you re- I think you've retired the rhinestone tiara of optimism it is all yours Corey. <laughs> <laughs> even though Sanger is actually wearing a rhinestone tiara at this moment <laughs> yeah it's going to say well, that, something that's but the normal duty bar for a New York Times reporter it's the one that Corey's absolutely it's right. the one that Corey sent me winning New York <laughs> Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times journalists get to wear whatever kind of tiara they want to. That's, um, that's beautiful. So, so Sanger uh, will be appearing next I, week on RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> <laughs> so while I very much hope it's true that at, that at least in our time of enormous political disaster in our own country, I... It would be a beautiful thing if our difficulties could serve as an object lesson to others and that in a kind of twisted way, um, American leadership in, in driving our political car off a cliff prevents others from doing the same. It seems to me also possible um, that, that maybe just everybody else is less reckless than us. Maybe it didn't take us driving off a cliff for other people not to drive off a cliff. Well, wait just one minute. The British drove off a cliff six months ago. I mean, okay, did, you know, uh, we, okay, you know, and so, so I will, I will accept <laughs> the Anglo-American special relationship and say the British are actually just as reckless as we are and driving off cliffs. But, but maybe everybody outside the Anglosphere is more sensible in the conduct of their national politics these days. I love, by the way, this Anglo-American thing. I was reading some article the other day saying, wither the future of Anglo-American democracy. And I was thinking, when did the Anglo, you know, why does the Anglo have any meaning in this picture at all? New Jersey is more important than the United Kingdom. 
Well, I'm going to come here briefly to the defense of of uh, my friend Ed and his mother country because New Jersey so far does not have its own independent nuclear weapons fleet. Well, okay. we do have Chris Christie. New, that's right. And the <laughs> thought explode at any minute. That's true. Okay. Uh, can I, okay, please state nerds. We actually need the competition of what kind of bomb is the governor of New Jersey. <laughs> can I ask can I ask Ed actually a, a, a question here out of my um sort of abundant ignorance of um uh, the politics of Britain? Let's assume for a minute that while Theresa May may stitch this together, that she's so wounded that she can't last long. What does that do to her commitment to go speed along with the Brexit uh, move since it's clear that if you held that vote again, you may well have a different outcome? Yeah, there's a lot of bias remorse people are reading into this election. I don't know how well they're proving it. But she's got, you know, a large number of conservative members of parliament who are as pro-Remain as the Brexiteers are pro-Brexit. And they now have leverage that they didn't have um, five days ago, which is one thing. The other is a really positive. There are a couple of really positive outcomes from this election. The first is the young voted. So turnout was right up. Levels of interest in democracy. At a level that they did not in the Brexit vote. Yes. So that's the buyer's remorse theory. But the other thing that I was going to mention in connection with your question is the Scottish Nationalist Party did really badly. SNP lost uh, almost a third of its seats in Scotland. And surprisingly, the Conservatives there did well, but the leader of the Scottish Conservatives, a woman called Ruth Davidson, whose bold account's impressive, um, is very, very pro soft Brexit, if not reversing Brexit. So there is a groundswell within um, the pro-business wing, if such a concept makes sense anymore, of the Conservative Party for what is called soft Brexit, but which actually means possibility of reversal, I think, which is still very narrow. But so May is now going to have to, uh, you know, this is why it's a problem. May doesn't know what on earth she thinks uh, or stands for. Well, because, and to go back to know, the Anglo-American thing, here's what we do know. May is going to be weakened to the extent to which she's in office for some time. Mm-hmm. Trump is going to be weak for a couple of years almost certainly um, because of investigations and other kinds of things and not to mention his own pathologies. Um, This goes back to the point we were talking about in the last podcast, which is somebody's going to step up. It's not going to be Italy, Greece, Spain, these places that have been somewhat weakened. Uh, But the German-French alliance, it seems to me – and maybe Corey or Rosie want to talk about this, but it seems the German-French alliance uh, seems to me more central than it may have been at any time since the very, very early days of the EU. What do you think? Yes, I agree with that. I agree with that. Uh, A big part of the reason uh, that the EU has been... um, has struggled to address the challenges that it's facing are that there there is the German bloc that favors austerity as the sole bludgeon to uh, to solve the the problems that the eurozone is experiencing, and then there is the 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 more reform minded uh, 
constituency, also known as the soft on debt constituency that France and Italy and others, and and you can't get past that unless France and Germany have some strong reason to split the difference or find something that's going to work for everybody. And I do think Macron's election makes him such an attractive potential partner for Germany that it may well get the Germans to moderate the austerity-only approach that they have taken. Well, so Rosa... Ed, what do you think about that? I think if Wolfgang Schäuble is still in his job... Um, as finance minister, that'll be really difficult to do. So Merkel's going to have to win and win big and find a way of easing him out because he is he, he is wedded to sado monetarism and he's going he's not going to he's not going to relax those rules whilst he's in that in that job. But so Rosa, when I listen to this, just picking up on what Ed said and what Rosa and Corey has said, you have a weakened U.S. You have a weakened U.K. You have the southern tier of Europe not just weakened by economic crisis, but still very much likely at odds with the Germans and German monetary policy. And so you've got a divided Europe. You may have a slightly resurgent France, but if you take the net-net, the Western alliance and NATO is significantly weaker, uh, or it looks like it's here heading into a period of significantly diminished political will uh, at a time when the Russians are not only adventurous, but Putin has his own election coming up and may actually have the incentive to test that weakness. Is that reading too much into this, Rosa? No, no. I, I unfortunately think that that analysis is right. I mean, the, to say that there is a vacuum and that there are all kinds of structural incentives now for the Europeans to start filling it is unfortunately not the same as saying that they have the immediate ability to do that, uh, whether it's in terms of military power or, or economic clout or internal unity. And, and I think that I think that is, is Trump a wake up call for them? Yes. Does that mean that they can? get themselves mobilized quickly enough to respond to a potential crisis induced, for instance, by Putin um, in, a, in an effective way, I'm, I, unfortunately, I doubt it. Um, I think that, again, you know, best case scenario next few years is that nothing really bad happens and everybody limps along and Trump goes away and we all regroup. But, but there, there is absolutely potential for, for near-term bad things to happen, and, and the scenario that you just outlined is one of the most one of the most likely. David, take your analysis to Asia, meanwhile, and what you'll get as well is now a split between the South Koreans and the Japanese about how to go deal with North Korea, and the Chinese sitting around having assured President Trump that they were going to be different this time, doing, as far as I can tell, about what they did during the Obama administration and maybe a little less. So it uh, and the U.S. again continuing to be a weaker player. Right, right. So you know this comes back to where we started in the first episode this week, which is there is a vacuum here. The question is, is it filled by any one figure? And I doubt that. Is it filled by a lot of regional chaos to which the United States then debates how much it wants to get dragged in? And I think that's where we're headed. You're seeing a little of that in the Afghanistan decision that we're waiting for 
uh, from this White House, which is torturing itself over the question of whether to send uh, 3,500 to 5,000 American special forces. Well, you know, back in the days when the United States was the the main leader, the question was, do you do a surge of 30,000 or 100,000 back in Bush's time? Or and, even the first year of Obama. That or was even the, the first year of Obama was the surge of 30,000 right. they had to decide on. Yeah. Well, I, look, I think that that's right. And that gets me to what I think is actually a big issue and added ties a little bit to your book, um, which uh, on, on the decline or the, the question of the decline of Western liberalism. Retreat of Western, yeah. Um, and which everyone should go out and buy <laughs> unless anyone here. Here, just, here. It's a really good book. It's oh, a really, thank you, Cody. It's a really, it's a really good book. Um, and, but I, I think that what we are seeing here is certainly an ebbing of U.S. influence that is having a consequence globally. And, you know, I, Christa Friedland, your former boss, gave a speech last week, and she's written some good articles as a journalist and some good books. But I think it was the most important thing she's ever written. Because to have the foreign minister of Canada stand up in the Canadian parliament and saying, it ain't the world you're used to, folks. Things have changed. Is different even from having the chancellor of Germany say it or the uh, president of China say it. This is as close to home as it gets, saying this we're not in Kansas anymore or we care less about Kansas than we used to care about Kansas. And that, that this this seems to be a watershed. Now, the big question is, is this a temporary watershed or is this a longer-term watershed? So I think that that's impossible to answer. Um, that's but, why I asked you. Uh, but, I, you know, the last 70 years, um, we've come to think is the natural order of things. And I think what we forget and what the American um, electorate might have forgotten is how unnatural it is. Um, to have a liberal international order. And it requires not sort of sudden epiphanies every sort of 10 years with the Marshall Plan or the Berlin Wall falling. It requires constant, continual, messy, ad hoc leadership from the one power capable of providing it, which is the United States. Um, and if, as is the case under Trump. The United States is no longer interested in upholding that international order and might, alas, Steve Bannon, um, be undermining it. Um, and that that follows an Obama administration which was pretty half-hearted already. This, is, this, you know, this problem doesn't suddenly manifest itself with Trump. Then Christopher Freeland's speech, Malcolm Turnbull's speech in Singapore, Angela Merkel's um, comments on this and others um, start to become a, a little less flash in the panish. Uh, I mean, you know, Canada is not going to have a foreign minister making this speech because this week things look bad. You know, this has been building up. This looks like a structural problem that America has lost interest in doing what it takes to uphold the liberal international order. And without America, there is no international uh, liberal international order. So I, I fear we're going to see more of this. Do you agree with that statement, David, that without America, there is no liberal international order? I agree that without America, there is less pressure for a liberal international order because it's not clear to me that other countries are necessarily going to stand up with the right kind of megaphone for the kind of values that we're 
discussing and will push back hard enough against Russia and China, which are looking for an illiberal order that they can that they can go uh, dominate. That doesn't mean that the values are gone, that the British don't share them, that the French don't share them. Uh, but I think it does mean that you lose considerable weight. And, you know, you go back to reading something like, you know, President of the Creation, which was Atchison's book about uh, – I was actually reading over the weekend. I only mentioned it, David, because I – you see, I was going to read it over the weekend, but instead I decided to read <laughs> your great questions of yesterday. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Tomorrow. It was great questions of tomorrow. Well, you're ahead of everybody. So yeah. For you, yeah. they may be the great I questions. I think those greater questions are all about <laughs> yeah, yeah, yesterday because yeah. tomorrow is too hard to figure out. Another good book. If you after you're done reading Luce's book, read Great Questions of Tomorrow, oh, and yeah. then ask strongly recommend. Uh, yes, Jesus and then ask Christ. if it was Great Questions of Yesterday, would it be even better? Yeah, well, <laughs> right. hold then, on to it. Hold on, on to, to it until it is creation. Great Questions of Yesterday. <laughs> when it's remainder, <laughs> you can change the you Thank can change you. the title. That's very harsh. Uh, yeah, right. but but I do think when you read Atchison, what you what you there's an underlying sense. That if we don't do this, there's no one else who can. And I think that's as true now as it was in 1947. I have to tell you, I'm starting to work on a new book. And so I'm, I'm very loath to talk too much about that kind of thing. But maybe you know, I'll throw it out there as, a, as, a, as, a, as a, you know, something Corey and Rosa can respond to. What I, 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 the reason I was reading President at the Creation, I was also reading The Wise Men, the great book by Walter Isaacson and Evan Thomas about the same period, was that at the end of World War II, that generation stood up and they said, we need to build the institutions for tomorrow. We need to create an order that works uh, so that we don't have uh, wars like the last two wars. We need to create um, a... Uh, structure in the U.S. government that works like this. We need to prepare the world for the next generation of leaders. Uh, and they did that. And we're 70 years past that. And all those institutions have survived. And yet, if you go around to millennials, they'll say they don't trust the institutions. And in fact, most of those institutions have been weakened by obsolescence. And in fact, I think what happened is, I think the baby boom generation drop the ball. I think the leaders, the elites of the baby boom generation in the U.S. and elsewhere are what I call, and this is the title of this upcoming book, Generation Fail, that they just didn't step up and say, what kind of world do we need in the future? How do we restructure it? And so they were, they're essentially present at the deconstruction they're present at the diminishment of all of this, and, and, and somebody's going to have to pick it up. The question I really have for Rosa and for Corey is, does the U.S. have to necessarily be at the center of that? Or haven't we evolved as a planet to a point where we can acknowledge that the bulk of people live someplace else, uh, that it may not be American liberalism that leads the way? Uh, the biggest democracy in the world is in India. Uh, other, you know, you the know, Trump campaign was based on the argument we don't have to be at the center of it. Well, that was America. Second. America first meant we can retreat back to our shores. Well, okay, excellent point, and I think that is the paradox inherent in this. But so, if, Corey, let me turn to you first. Response, reaction. Uh, so I think you're right, David. I agree with your with. Uh, it sounds like the line of argument, and what's going to be a really interesting book. I. 
My yeah, another title for this book is You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again. Because <laughs> once, <I, laughs> once I deconstruct and demolish all the policymakers. Okay, yeah, go on. I'm not sure that's true. Dan Dresner said all manner of nasty things in the ideas industry, and he's lunching on it. So, so maybe Washington is actually so craven a place that they will reward you for pointing out their inadequacies, David. Thank you. But at, as you say, it's not the inadequacies of Washington. It's the inadequacies of all of us who have taken for granted the the liberal order that we inherited did much too little to sustain or improve it. And it is our children who are going to have to bear the burden of fighting to uh, restore it if we let it slip away from us now. It actually really matters that we sustain institutions, that we win the argument domestically against those who think against those who support Trump's virulent strain of nationalism, right? Like, it matters to have friends in the world. We are burning through the reputational advantages that the previous generation engifted us. We're being incredibly reckless, and the bill is going to come due. So I, I accept that. Rosa, let me ask you the the original question, though, can you envision a successor to the Pax Americana that's a little bit more egalitarian, diverse, truly global in terms of its leadership? Why does it all have to be around one big country? No, I, of course, absolutely, and and I think if this species, if humanity as a species has a future, it's going to have to become a more global, more diverse form of global leadership, uh, with 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 better and more robust mechanisms for take for taking collective action uh, and for implementing decisions that are made collectively. Um, that absolutely goes without saying. But here's the bad news, um, and I actually do have another piece of good news after the bad news. The bad news is, is that historically uh, the world has not been very good at that, and, and your greatest generation that created the uh, international institutions that have endured for 70-plus years now, even though they're awfully creaky and long in the teeth, uh, as you said, they did it because they had just been through two world wars. The, the historical records that collective action is not taken except on the, on the heels of catastrophe. Um, and I'm not sure we've yet gotten to catastrophe enough to wake up enough people to get serious about creating this egalitarian global you're envisioning. Uh, I would like to think, I wish, that we were all such wonderful national actors. We go, oh, goodness, with all of these collective problems, such as climate change, uh, such as cyber conflict, et cetera, we need to do it. Let's not wait for catastrophe. But, but I'm not, I, you know, I... I I don't, I don't think we have a lot of reason for optimism on that front based on the historical record of when people are impelled to make radical changes um, that are sometimes in their short term uh, uh, against their short-term self-interest for the sake of the greater good. Um, but here's my, here's my little tiny piece of optimism, and it's, it's a cheer and a half for the deep state. Yay, uh, gay know, deep we're state. All about the end. Yes, we're all talking about the end of the Pax Americana, uh, but but Trump or no Trump, 
98% of what the United States did under Barack Obama is continuing. You know, make that 99.7%. The, the, the 0.3% that isn't continuing really matters at the symbolic level. It would really, really matter if Trump decides to start a nuclear war, etc. But most of what maintained the Pax Americana, which is to say things like American aircraft carriers uh, going around the globe, things like the latent American power, things like deterrent power, in fact, they are still there, but, which is to say that American foreign policy, to a significant extent, does kind of chug along, regardless of what the president does or doesn't do. We have bureaucratic processes that are already in place. We have, we have longstanding uh, orders. We have, we have you know, multi-year plans for how the combatant commands are going to behave. And all that stuff just keeps going unless somebody affirmatively decides to stop it and that somebody would have to be the Secretary of Defense and or the President to affirmatively decide to stop it. So I don't think we need to think that, you know, imminently, not, not every aspect of American power has sort of crashed to the ground simultaneously. If we can keep Trump from affirmatively doing anything god-awful, you know, it's more likely to be a slow slow bleed rather than a, a sudden explosion. Well, let me say, we'll come back to this issue as we go forward, but I would argue that actually it's not just Trump and that Bush, Obama, and Trump together, the baby boom presidents that we had, or, uh, or three out of the four, um, uh all contributed in some way to this decline and all failed to contribute in material ways to the refurbishment of the international order. And so you can have the United States continuing on autopilot, but if the system that had once been the great leveraging tool of that power is not functioning, then the United States suffers from that. We've only got about five minutes to go, and I don't want to uh, miss the opportunity to talk about another next generation issue, uh, and that has to do with cyber. And David, you did a, an article recently on cyber and ISIS, which I think in some respects reflects on this conversation because it's about how does the American power, where it's at its most evolved, deal with current cutting edge threats quite apart from the president? You know, just does it work? Well, David, the, the core of this article was uh, my colleague Eric Schmidt uh, and myself going off to look at a year later at how the United States' cyber activity against ISIS has worked out. And it was an interesting um, cyber initiative because this is the only one the United States has announced in advance. You know, the attacks on Iran were kept secret, still officially are. The attacks on North Korea we've written about in their missile program, still, uh, you know, officially secret. But the Secretary of Defense came out a year ago and said, we're using cyber weapons against ISIS. So we went back and said, so how's that going? And the answer to the question is, it's a lot easier to go after fixed targets, whether they're nuclear centrifuges or even missiles where there's a physical infrastructure to go after it. Then, oddly enough, the relatively low-tech um, ISIS structure, which is basically a bunch of folks with laptops and encrypted cell phones running around trying to go wreak havoc. The question is, why should that be so hard? And the answer is that the infrastructure of the internet has allowed them to back up their material. They use ice, They use the internet less for 
making nuclear weapons or missiles and so forth and much more from making propaganda and communicating with each other. And it turns out you can take that propaganda and put it up on a bunch of servers and if the NSA or Cyber Command comes and pulls you down, three days later, you're back up in operation because you've got another copy of it stored somewhere. And so in an odd way, the low-tech nature of their use of the internet is a protection. That's really interesting because one of the things that goes along with it is that it seems like the things that you would have used conventional air power against, like bombing, where the big hard infrastructure, are the things you're using cyber against. And the things that you would hope you could use cyber against, which are more distributed systems, um, which air power is not as useful for, it's harder. It's one of the great – it's the things you wouldn't have anticipated even three years ago. And one of the reasons for that, one of the reasons we use them against hard infrastructure projects is that if you bomb something, you probably start a war. And as we've discussed before, if you use cyber against it, you probably – because it's deniable and it's sort of hard to see, you probably don't trigger a war. But it doesn't help you much if you're up against something that is buried in the internet that we all use every day. Okay, so we've got four minutes left. I want to do each one of you one minute summer reading suggestion. But it's not a summer reading suggestion in a book. It's summer reading, what portion of the newspaper or the internet should I be reading to see the big international story that deserves to get coverage but won't because the Trump follies will be getting the coverage in the United States or elsewhere. What part of the world do you think is going to be most um, threatening or or interesting or significant um, that just not going to make it into the top of headlines for most people over the course of the summer, Ed? So I think we've been um, not paying much attention recently to South Asia in general, but Pakistan in particular. Um, there's a lot going on there. Um, there is a, a, a shaky um, democratic government under Nawaz Sharif. There is a rising ISIS threat in its cities, including in Karachi, its largest city. And there is more important for a sort of geopolitical um, point of your question, uh, there is real tension, the highest so far between the Narendra Modi government in India. Modi, incidentally, is um, visiting India, uh, visiting Washington next week. Modi and Trump have a have a, a White House meeting. Let's see how that goes. But um, so Trump's not going to be reading up on all of this, but we are, right? Um, the India-Pakistan situation is, is at its highest tension. It has been a long time over Kashmir, and that's saying something. Um, so I would, I would, I would look to that region. It's been underappreciated. It's not been on Washington's radar. Um, but it, it it might well force its way onto it quite soon. Well, I'm going to, consistent with my current physical location here in our neighbor to the north, Canada, uh, I'm going to go with the rest of this hemisphere, the, the northern hemisphere, and our two neighbors, Mexico and Canada, which we are, maybe it's the familiarity breeds contempt, but we, we tend to ignore them. And I would, we have, we have mentioned, uh, not one but two Canadian political leaders in this podcast alone, but I would wager that the average American, I'm sure this is not true of our listeners, but the average American 
would be hard-pressed to name even a single Canadian political leader. We tend to think of Canada as a another U.S. state uh, that's a little bit colder, has more hockey and more maple leaves, and that's about it. Uh, we tend to think of Mexico as having drugs and nice beaches, and that's about it. But I do think that, that I don't think that the next crisis is necessarily going to come from Canada or Mexico, but in terms of bellwether places to keep an eye on, to look at their internal political discourses, to look at what are they saying about the United States, what are they saying about the threats that they see in the world, is going to be pretty important for all of us in the future and, and probably a good guide and maybe an early warning system to what we are not going to be paying attention to because we are going to be so obsessed with the latest Trump drama. I have to say, knowing our nerd audience as I do, if they were forced to choose between hockey and maple leafs and drugs and nice beaches, I think they're going for the drugs and nice beaches. <laughs> but that's just a guess. Corey, where, where are you looking? I would have chosen Mexico if Rosa hadn't already chosen it, because I actually think we are being way, way too indifferent to the knee-buckling cost to Mexico of the drug war and associated criminality that demand for drugs in the United States is creating. Uh, but since Rosa took that, I will say that I think the story we are missing, uh, because we treat Russia as a BMS and, and you know, uh, we treat Russia as though they are China, right? Like rising and smart. And I think the story we may be missing is Russia's failure. The, the loss of confidence by Russians in, in the authoritarian model, the failure of the Russian economy to deliver in that model, the enormous outflows of capital that result from Russia being run like a mafia state, and, and the corrosion and hollowing out at the core at the center of Russian power. I think we've got the story wrong on Russia. It's not Russia's uh, diabolical uh, adversarial creativity. It's actually the, the grim uh, Venezuelanization of Russia. There's so much for you to choose from, David. Pick just one. Yeah, right. Well, first of all, I have to say that Rose's description reminded me of that wonderful contest a number of years ago to identify the most boring New York Times headline. And it was the, 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 the winning submission was an op-ed column whose headline was Worthwhile Canadian Initiative. Okay, <laughs> and I think the I think the award I think the, the prize winner got a copy of Gerald Ford's A Time to Heal. Okay, so <laughs> that said, that said, I think that the other um, funny story uh, uh, that we're going to have to uh, get serious about in in a big hurry is how Xi Jinping and how the Chinese play. Trump over the next year or two because they see a huge opportunity here. I think they've got his number. They look at this White House. They understand how it operates. They get the princelings thing because they've been there and they've done that. And uh, I think the really fascinating question is the degree to which 
they actually manipulate the system to their advantage. That said, Ed's Pakistan, uh, uh, Corey's uh, description of um, uh, of the threats we face uh, elsewhere, I think, are all absolutely accurate. But my mind's on China. Interestingly, while I agree with all of these as good choices, I would have to say that one that was just mentioned in passing here, which was Venezuela, um, I think has the possibility of exploding into a really big crisis almost at any moment um, and is worth keeping your eyes on. And one that I'm surprised didn't come up in the four, uh, and that is the Persian Gulf with the uh, decision by the Trump administration to essentially leave the policy and the resolution of issues in that part of the world to a Saudi-led coalition. Um, And while that may be a good thing, and I think ultimately it is a good thing for regional leaders to take care of regional problems. Uh, I think it 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 is likely to cause, uh, in the near term, potential upsets and tensions in the Persian Gulf that we should be on the watch for. Uh, and of course, if you're talking about, you know, human drama, human suffering, human challenges, uh, Africa seldom gets mentioned here, and really deserves a mention. I think that uh, there are a number of issues there that are uh, at the critical level, um, whether it has to do with famine or conflict. In any event, that sounds like fun summer reading, whether you're on the beach or you're watching hockey in Canada. Um, We certainly uh, hope you will be with us each and every week throughout the summer here at Deep State Radio. We reiterate our request that if you are doing something to help get the word out about Deep State Radio, that you share with us what you're doing and how it's working, and maybe you'll get a coveted Deep State Radio mug or sweatshirt or some other form of swag we haven't thought up. Magic eight balls were suggested. You never know. We'll keep that kind of uh, uh, stuff constantly in development here at the deep state. Uh, And, you know, think there's an advantage here. Because when you build the influence of the deep state radio, um, you are actually reaching out uh, to a community of awesome power. Uh, You will be building your own connections uh, to the insiders who actually will make all the decisions about the future, not only of the U.S. government and global affairs, uh, but also of which box wines sell the best in the world uh, and who has (laughs) the skinniest legs on the treadmills in the gym. uh, While listening to Deep State Radio, please join us again next week for two more great episodes of Deep State Radio. Bring your friends, bring your families. We're really enjoying this. Talk to you soon. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.